It's Thursday night at 6 o'clock for a very special episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. We've got a awesome roundtable set up for you, and we're talking Marvel's Luke Cage, which, they, which debuted on Netflix just about two weeks ago um, and has kind of created a lot of interesting discussion. So we've got two guests to help uh, walk us through that, and we'll see what they have to say. But before I introduce them, let me introduce my co-host, Alana. How you doing? I'm really excited about this. I'm, I've been looking forward to this show for, I mean, it's the thing I've most looked forward to that Marvel said they were going to do, basically. Um, and now we've got to see it and talk about it. I do want to say up front, I did not get to see the last two issues. I'm sorry, episodes. Shows how much comics I read versus television. But I encourage <laughs> folks to spoiler away because it's been a few weeks. I, you know, this is going to be our one podcast really talking about the show. So, you know, folks should feel free to give away whatever. Just know that if you want my opinion about something that happened in the last two episodes, I don't have one. So that's where I'm coming on this. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, so we'll introduce our guests. Uh, they are – sorry, let me – of course, walked away from that. Uh, we've got two guests. Uh, Charles Pulliam Moore is a blogger at Fusion where he writes about race, sexuality, inclusion, and nerd cult- culture. Um, you know, Twitter is his social media dr- uh, drug of choice. You can find him there, and we'll be tweeting up his uh, info in a little bit. His work also has appeared at NPR Slate, and he thinks Cyclops is right. We can debate about that, but that will be a whole other show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> welcome her back is Parama uh, Horn, a.k.a. The Blurred Girl, freelance commercial video editor by day, comic book reading, anime watching, TV live tweeting, K-pop listening, blog writing, superhero, geek girl by night. Uh, on a mission to shine a light on both characters and sequential arts of color, she provides commentary, reviews, interviews on her popular Tumblr and official website, theblurredgirl.com, and she also contributes to graphic policy. Welcome both to the show. Oh, Charles just dropped. Hello. <laughs> Charles is hey. there for a second. I thought I heard Charles. There he is. Yeah. Okay. Right. He'll be I right back. You'll be calling in. I'm a so glad bit. you both said yes to joining us on this episode because. I was trying to figure out, like, who are the right voices we wanted to highlight because everyone has an opinion about Luke Cage, but I don't really care about everybody's opinion about Luke Cage. I care about you guys' opinion about Luke Cage. (laughs) So I want to thank you guys again for joining us and for for sharing the conversation, you know, Um, because you guys are both coming at this as people who are comic book readers, comic book fans, who have done a lot of writing about issues of race and comics and, and pop culture in general, so, yeah. Um, yeah, this is your podcast, folks, for people who are, like, actually comic geeks talking about Luke Cage from a comic geek-informed perspective, but also a politically and socially conscious perspective, so. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, it's, uh, there he is. Hi, Charles. Yay. Hey, sorry, you guys. I just moved one, one room to another, and my connection crapped out on me. <laughs> so <It's> typical. <laughs> No, as long as I don't have to do this by myself, Charles, I'm fine, because I'm like, where is he? (laughs) (laughs) So I want to start with like a a 50-foot reflection sort of question for everybody, which is, overall, what do you think the show did best, and what did you think the show did worst? Ooh. uh... Overall, I think um and i'm going to speak from sort of like i'm standpoint um and from a, from a 
people of color on television standpoint. Um, I think visually it was amazing. Uh, and when I say amazing, it's not like stunning, like, oh, my God, all of the effects. It wasn't that. There were just subtle things that were amazing. And to me, who is somebody who also works in media, like I edit commercials and I edit promos, and I've actually been given directives, like don't have, don't edit all the black people next to each other and don't have mm. a black, a Latino, or two black people and a Latino next to each other because then it's going to be considered a target market spot. And we can't have those two shots next to each other because they look too similar. So there's a, there's a um, shot, um, well, there's two shots that were just, whoa, just blew my mind. One was a shot with an argument between Priscilla <clears throat> the inspector and Misty in uh, in the police station, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. These two would never have been cast in a mainstream show together because right. the casting director would have thought they looked too much alike. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was the scene where the young um, the young black boy had been roughed up by a black cop, no less, and <clears throat> it was four women. It was the boy's mother, who's a lawyer. It was Mariah. It was Misty. And it was Priscilla in the hallway all arguing four different opinions about the same thing. And honestly, that scene right there defines I think most people's reaction to Luke Cage. And I think it's beautiful. I think it is amazing that there's so many different points of view from black people and people of color about Luke Cage. Because that's the point. It's, I've never seen a show showcase the intersectionality of black people. And that's, that's why I loved it, even beyond getting into all the you know, specific stuff. So that's the good stuff. I'll come back around to what I think is my, my issue, <laughs> some of the stuff that I get <laughs> done without. Um, I agree. I you know I agree with what Karam is saying. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, we traffic and like a lot of buzzwords on the internet when we're talking about things. And so when people say that Luke Cage is unapologetically black, I think that there is a way in which it is visually. Um, Karam is right. Like you don't see. It's it's a point that's brought up on um, another Netflix show, Master of None. Um, the way that studios look um, at their casting decisions when you're dealing with people of color. Um, and it comes down to that idea that if you have, um, you know, more than one person of color um, on screen or more than one person of color who reads as being from the same racial group, um, suddenly it's a black show. Luke Cage fully leans into that idea, um, even though it addresses the fact that gentrification is a problem. Um, in Harlem, it doesn't go out of its way mm-hmm. to show you, um, you know, oh, like there are the evil white people who are coming in um, and taking up all of this space. It's no, it's, uh, you know, it's an issue that is being worked over um, and sort of dealt with on a daily basis by its black characters, which is something that you, you just don't flat out see. Um, there is a degree to which you have to sort of read Marvel's decision to um, highlight its black cast as it being a show of faith that even though um, this show, and rightfully so, has been marketed as being a black show, it has a crossover appeal, right? Um, without it, uh, without there being any fear of it being pigeonholed as being one particular um, kind of program. Um, for me personally, as like, just like on like a straight up nerd tip, 
Um, it did a really mm-hmm. good job of taking source material that easily could have been um, cheesy or two-dimensional um, gra- and grounding it in the Marvel Cinematic Universe in a way that felt right. I think that oftentimes, yeah. Um, yeah. You, there are oftentimes when you, every, every, every couple of um, projects that come out during a Marvel cycle, there's always like, oh, and here is this new branch of the universe that we've never talked about before. Um, there are times in which it can feel a little ham-handed, you know, um, Guardians of the Galaxy mm-hmm. comes to mind, where it's like, all right, you guys, we're going to yeah. aliens now. <laughs> and with this, right. um, within, you know, the Netflix space, uh, this is definitely a very deliberate answer to a lot of the criticisms that were leveled against Daredevil and Jessica Jones, which are shows set in New York, um, but a New York in which, you know, brown and black people by and large don't exist, right? Um, right, you, right. you know, if you, if you live in, you not, not that you don't even have to live, if you ever spent any time in Hell's Kitchen, um, you know that it is not the, the, the gang-infested war zone that Daredevil makes it out to be. And whatever mm-hmm. part of Midtown Jessica Jones, you know, is operating in, um, there are plenty of, like, there are plenty of non-white people down there, but you wouldn't know that um, to mm-hmm. see, you know, to watch the shows. And so Luke Cage, in a way, is really sort of legitimizing the New York City that Marvel is trying to depict. You know what I mean? Um, and that's mm-hmm. a big deal, you know, because when you are talking about getting young people in particular invested in these franchises and sort of like down to be fans of them, that's when representation is really important, just like visual representation. Um, when you're dealing with fictionalized narratives about real spaces, if you, you know, if part of your fictionalization is, you know, the erasure of people of color, then that's a problem. Um, and Luke Cage is <laughs> mm-hmm, very much mm-hmm. like, um, you know, it's, it, I don't want to say it solves that problem, but it's definitely like a major step in the right direction towards correcting it. And you know what else I like? Even though, um, the, oh goodness, I cannot remember the name of the, the Latino character. He was the other, the other kingpin that, um, that Cottonmouth was going oh, up Diego, Chico, Chico Diego. Yes, yeah. Chico Diego. That actor has often played very, um, ended up having to play very stereotypical um, Mexican or Puerto Rican characters. And even mm. though he was still, like, technically a gangster, I was like, oh, my God, look, he's got a suit. He's not wearing a hairnet. I'm so happy. Ooh, that's like, true. It's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the little thing. To that it's point, you know, thing. the the thing that I honestly like is that my one take, like the, the, the best thing about this series, in my opinion, um, is the fact that we have a variety of villains of color. Um, and Marvel's first female mm-hmm. villain introduced yeah. in the series. Mm-hmm. Like there's this, there's, when, you, when you're talking about representation on screen um, and studios pushes to be more inclusive, oftentimes what you get um, is sort of like this reactionary backlash to decades worth of um, uh, marginalized people playing villains that were very like two-dimensional and grounded in stereotypes, right? Um, so it's mm-hmm, not so much mm-hmm. that there are these fleshed-out people who have like legit motivations to be evil, right? They're literally just um, not so subtle reminders of real-world prejudices. Um, but with Luke mm-hmm. Cage, you know, you have this cast of villains who are all, you know, they're bad people. Um, that I think that you can cheer for that are, you know, they're just out here, you know, running around trying like 
doing the same thing that Wilson Fisk is doing and thinking to themselves, like, why not me? Like, why, why shouldn't Cottonmouth want to have Harlem in a political stranglehold? Why wouldn't, you know, Mariah Dillard want to have her hands involved? Like, why wouldn't you want to, want to be involved in everything going on in Harlem? And that, like, we, it's, I don't want to say it's easier, but it's, there's definitely been more of a push for heroes of color um, historically, and uh, you know, for obvious reasons, right? Like you want to have positive role models, mm-hmm. but in order to tell, in order to tell really like nuanced and layered stories, you need villains that are just as compelling um, as the heroes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Otherwise, the hero comes across uh, more sort of like um, like a parable. You know what I mean? It's almost a little condescending. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, you can do it too, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, you gave them a villain that's you know. <laughs> you know, basically like a cardboard cutout, like give them something, someone, uh, you know, give them something substantial to fight. Um, and so that really, like that, honestly, it's the villains that pulled me into Luke Cage more than anything else. Alfre Woodward yeah, should get all... an Emmy. Yeah. Yes, yeah, she should get something. She should get something. Yeah, she gets, because, I mean, I think her performance was very powerful. Um, the only thing, the, um, the only thing that I think bothered me about Luke Cage were just me being a, just a comic book geek and a and an editor. They were all just like technical stuff. Like they made him, they made Luke Cage from Georgia versus from Harlem and having Harlem. been shipped to Seagate, they had him from Georgia and in, in Netflix comic Harlem. And so it's sort of that was a little like hmm, because he's supposed to be from Harlem and that kind of bothers me. Um, and sometimes some of the way he, some of the things he did, I was like, yeah, you, you're not from here, but maybe that, you know, maybe that's why they went with that storytelling. Um, but there was definitely a link with Seagate because there was a, when I was at New York Comic Con this past weekend, the Seagate image came up in an Iron Fist thing I saw also. So they're Mm -hmm. definitely trying to link Seagate in that area to like a bunch of different things. Um, Can I just say the, how weird it is that they're calling it Seagate? Because that's an actual place in Brooklyn. Yeah. It's like a neighborhood. I know. It, it was really cool. I don't yeah. even know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's way out by Brighton Beach. Yeah, it's by like Coney. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. But yeah, it's really. No, 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 it's fine. That's one of the other things that's a little bit weird. Um, the only other, th- I think the first, and this happens with Netflix a lot, I think. The first two episodes and the last two episodes, I had the same problem with Jessica Jones. I had the same problem with Daredevil. I feel the first two episodes um, could have been one episode, and yep. I was not as I was not as thrilled with the last episode. The second to the last episode of most Netflix series is the best episode. Is the ending? The the, the, yeah. the the final episode is usually like an advertisement for the whatever's coming up in the following season. So I'm. I was not. I'm sorry. I know I'm going to spoil it a little for you. Um, Please go ahead. Spoilers are okay. If you weren't, you weren't you there. You're good with spoilers. Yeah, but it, I was like, sort of, you know, kiss the girl, get Carter off to jail, everything's tied up in a bow. It's like, wait, <laughs> Missy showing up the club. Like, wait. I feel like um, the second to the last episode could have, could have, you know, done that better. And um, I also felt that. Uh, the only other thing that I felt was strange was I get the point of having Cottonmouth and Diamondback and Cottonmouth's death was completely warranted. Um, 
and I know it sounds strange, but I'm empowering also, I think, in a mm. feminist sort of way because of how what Mariah was basically reliving when it happened. Mm. Um, but and how good I is it that the show? That, oh, sorry. No, it's okay. All I, all I wanted to just add to that was that the two villains, the Cottonmouth and the Diamondback, I was they should have just been one. Yes, and I was more frightened of Diamondback when Shades was just about him, like like he was an entity. So like just like <laughs> I was frightened the aliens, I was frightened of the aliens and signs until they showed up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it was like yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I was like, oh my god, I don't want to see. Like I really wanted to not see, and they did that with Daredevil. You really didn't see, you know, um, Kingpin until much later. So I didn't want to see until the end and then I wanted him to be the introduction to, to um, season two when he showed up right. I was like why are we scared of this man because right, that clearly and like, should be running you everything with, you see him with like the proto suit where it's just like that battery on his <laughs> back and he has the one glove you know what I mean like I think that like right. you're the right, perfect way to end it he, yeah the power glove even if he had been out <laughs> using it you know to frame Luke um, by imitating his powers yeah. um that again, that should have been. That's like another. That's you know. That is um, that is a Tyrannosaurus making the glass of water shake. That you don't know what's causing exactly. exactly. You don't know how it's happening. And then the last shot. You honestly, exactly. we didn't need to see. We didn't need to see the prototype too because it was stupid. Not like mm-hmm. uh, Diamondback. It was stupid. It was like it was like bad. It was bad hammer tech. Like I just honestly, I would have <laughs> rather. And it sounds crazy, but this is like this is just the comic book geek in me. I would rather not have met Diamondback. I would rather have Missy not been able to save her arm. And Thank in you. The We're in the hospital, and, like, Tony Stark shows up, like, I think I can help you out here. Like, that was the ending that I wanted to see. <laughs> like, I, 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 unfortunately, I, like, I don't think Missy's going to lose her arm. I think that we're just going to have to, I think that literally that one little wink and a nod, like you could have lost it. Like that is going to be it, which is a letdown. She's supposedly going to lose it. There's, there was something came out where they they said that. They they set it up because night nurse said like, I have to tie off the artery. Otherwise you could basically lose your whole arm. And what she did and how long she had to stay under there, it's possible that it becomes infected. There's some problem. Like they did set it up. I guess. I I mean, like, I think she eventually will. If you're going to lose, like, if you're going to lose an arm, don't tease me with losing an arm. Like, don't come close <laughs> to losing an arm. Because later on in the episode, like, I, I was paying attention because I'm like, oh, shit, is it going to fall off? Is it going to fall off? You know, that's oh. not how it works. But, right. and then but she, later on. And then she takes the sling off. She takes the sling off. I was like, really, Battle? Really? Right. right. <laughs> like, no wincing, just, like, completely capable. Right. And you're like, oh, well, all right. We'll see. But in terms of right, we'll I mean, in terms of showing and not telling, like I, I really felt like the act Ali, uh, who, who played Cottonmouth, was tremendous, and I felt that the actor yeah. who played Diamondback, there were moments where he felt like he was drawing from an '80s action movie villain, which mm-hmm. is entertaining. He was, he was drawing from, he was like drawing from literally the comic book character when it first came yeah. out, and like, in like the seventies, it was like. Wow, really? And it was so funny because then all of then shades to me seems less menacing because mm-hmm. he sort of seemed right. like he was 
he was covering for his crazy ass boss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the whole I mean? time, like he's like the he's like the consultant who they bring in who's an expert at being a um, uh, being a, a crime lord. And then when the actual crime lord comes, it actually seems like Shade is more competent, more controlled than mm-hmm. than Diamondback, which I thought was an unfortunate characterization. You know, to have the consultant yeah. like be more have his act together more. And I understand the show wanted to do a whole twinning thing between the brothers and the Cain and Abel, and of course. There's just a ton of biblical allusions throughout, but that—that's not what impressed right, me about Right, because Diamond, because because Diamondback kept quoting them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. He's either quoting—he was either quoting the Bible or he was quoting that book, Power. Um, and you're correct. In in the comic book, they weren't related. They weren't brothers. They were. Um, they were friends. They're just but friends. I, I think yeah. they were in a gang together what? or something. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and then what the problem? But the part of him making Luke go to jail—that part was true. Yeah. But the thing that's interesting is that some of the dynamics, though, I will say, though, making them brothers and half brothers and not knowing it, but him sitting there kind of remembering. Mm. Within the black community, I have seen that. And look, my family's from the islands, so there's entire Calypso songs about. People being your 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 I didn't grow up I did not grow up with hearing although I, I my my siblings are biologically we both have the same parents but I grew up with a lot of people who grew up with half brothers and half sisters but I never heard the term half brother or half sister like uh, within my house or my fa- family, that's from when you're from the islands. That's just you don't say that. That's your brother. That's your cousin. Everybody is right. your aunt. Everybody's your uncle. So, and that's a little bit of Harlem also. And that was something else I did like about it. There were just subtle moments that happened and so subtle themes, like just little things that would come up that you went, did he just say plug one, plug two? Like you would just go, <laughs> no, that did not just happen. And these were these are allusions to hip-hop and allusions, excuse me, my voice is still recovering from New York Comic Con. Um, allusions, allusions, and that even though there was a lot of hip-hop throughout the throughout the film, even though I kept hearing a lot of people like, I don't see any, I don't see any hip-hop, and I'm like, are you not hearing this music? Like, right. so there was, there was things that were done subtly that I thought were awesome. Um, but that's sort of like the little geek editor in me, like, ooh, I caught that, I saw that transition, or I saw that book cover, or, mm-hmm. you know, those are the little uh, Easter eggs that I thought were there for the people who were looking for them. But it played to a lot of, it, it, it played on a lot of different levels. And I don't know, I understand some of the criticism, but, I mean, as a whole, I think, um, Coker and family did all, uh, an amazing job. Hmm. I think that like the show is, I, there are a lot of things to like about Luke Cage that I think really do come out in those more subtle moments where it's not mm-hmm. directly preaching at you. Mm-hmm. Um, that like, yeah. And, and sitting yeah. and sitting with the, and having, having sat with the series for, a couple of weeks now, I realized, because like on the whole, like I'll come out and just say it. I didn't love this. I didn't love it. As, like I, Jessica Jones is definitely top for me. Then Luke Cage and then Daredevil. Cause the martial arts thing just doesn't do it for me. Um, but Luke Cage <laughs> is, 
like the 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 strength of its like black representation in my mind is in those moments where it's not trying to tell you, hey, this is a black show. You are supposed to understand it by virtue of the things that are being said, the people that you're seeing on screen, um, just those very everyday depictions of black life that are, you know, hyper-stylized because it's a comic book show. Um, But then there are these moments where it's like an after-school special, where it's like, all right, kids, today, yeah, that, today that, that, we're going to talk about Christmas I was like, no. And it's the thing no, is, no, there is, there's a space for that kind of conversation because, like, every black kid growing up, right, we all have that, like, there's always that one family member that is, like, heavy, heavy, heavy on black history that wants you to, you know, be able to spit off facts about black history immediately. And mm-hmm. you as a kid, you're like, oh, my God, why are we doing this? Like, that is, that's a very relatable experience. You know what I mean? And I feel like mm-hmm. that almost would have been better suited for pops to be into. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Having a man from an old yeah. generation sort of speaking to the necessity of understanding uh, black history in a uh, like black culture in a historical context, but because it's always but, coming from Luke, right? Who is you know he is he is our guide and the centerpiece of this series. It felt weird sometimes because you're like, how old are you, dude? Um, you know, like they're they're, they're well, you know what? And I think I think that was Cheo's voice. I think that's where Cheo's voice was speaking through. I do. Oh, definitely. Because and like, and, he's generation and he's generation just... X, and he's generation X. And I think and I think a lot of the hollering about being conservative is actually not what it is. It's his his, his his it's the age group, and I think there's millennials that are yelling because they're like, why why am I being preached to? I totally like that. Like that, I totally understand. But there's a point at which you have to question whether or not a writer is doing their job when the characters that they're writing sound like them and not like the character themselves, mm-hmm. right? Because the, mm-hmm. there are moments. There are moments where you can feel Coker slipping into Luke's voice and thinking from his perspective, mm-hmm. right? How would Luke respond to this? Mm-hmm. What would he say? What would he say to Pops? What would he say to Mariah? And those moments are great, right? Because you're you're watching, you know, you're like, you're watching the fantasy unfold. And then you're like, you're pulled out of it for a moment where you're just like, Oh, wait, no, 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 no. Like this doesn't seem, that doesn't seem like the sort of thing that, you know, uh, a black man in his early forties from Georgia would say necessarily, right. Living in, you know, living Mm -hmm. in Harlem in 2016, like that doesn't quite, uh, there's like that unevenness sort of like breaks the illusion a little bit. And the breaking of the illusion would be fine, were it not for the fact that it's coming from what struck me as like a very judgmental and holier than thou kind of space at certain times, right? Um, now, like, to, like, just to sort of like contextualize my point, now there's a lot that's been mm-hmm. written about Luke Cage being Marvel's like first explicitly black project, right? With you know, mm-hmm. a black story with black leads and a black setting, um, and then the work that the show is doing on some levels to speak to a lot of the social issues facing black people in 2016. So it's that like mm-hmm. sort of being one of the theses that the show was working with in those moments where the show, where, where Coker's voice shines through and is sort of taking a very 
firm set of positions on certain black mm-hmm. topics. And you have to be like, well, mm-hmm. dude, like you have, like you have to be careful here, right? Because you've set, like you've posted up in a very particular kind of way. So the things that you decide to say take on an added layer of meaning, right? Um, the, and I've, I've we, said the same thing. I've said the yeah. same thing about Black Panther. Black Panther. Everybody is hailing it as like going to be the great Black Hope movie, and I'm like, you realize you haven't seen a single frame. You haven't seen right. any heard any dialogue. <laughs> You've only seen the casting. You are going to get your feelings hurt. And I've been I said it before. People keep putting all their leaning on these films, and it's like, wait, wait. It's still Marvel. It's not only that, but it's also I tell this I tell this to like all of my friends who who stand really hard um, for the Black Panther, um, and I'm like, I get that he's a big deal for like. Like, he's a big deal for us, right? Like, because we're, we're in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, when you're talking about like Hollywood representation, like, all right, like this is going to be a major motion picture put out by one of the largest studios in the world. You know, it's pretty much guaranteed to make a substantial amount of money, right? Like, all right, mm-hmm. like let's have mm-hmm. like, let's have an Afrofuturist film be a blockbuster. That's great, but in terms mm-hmm. of what mm-hmm. kind of commentary the Black Panther character can provide for. Um, just like for Black Americans is limited because let's talk about like like let's be real about who the character is. He's an African king from an isolationist nation. Oh yeah, right. Don't trust me. Anybody I ask that's African, anybody I ask that's African about Black Panther is completely and totally unimpressed with the comics, right? They're just with like, the comic oh, no. book, with the upcoming spinoffs, with the movies, all of it. They're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> right. and it's, because it's a much it's a much more like measured and realistic take on like okay if if Wakanda was real would T'Challa be the kind of person that you would want to hang out with no no he's not <laughs> now you know you don't you but, don't but really also, hang out with also, royal go ahead but also T'Challa wouldn't care <laughs> right he said it, he literally said care it about on screen <laughs> he's like he's the king he's yeah. like remember, yeah Hawkeye he's like hi I'm Clint I don't care like oh, right. <laughs> I can see it. I can see it in my head. Like you know, I can see CNN reaching out to T'Challa to ask him like what his you know what his perspective on Black Lives Matter is now that he's you know an informal member of the Avengers. And he's like, no, that that has nothing to do with me. I I come to save the world occasionally, but that that is a you issue. Um, that's you know, like we're you know like poking fun. Like it'll be a great movie, I'm sure. Um, but to bring it like back to Luke, like to bring it back to Luke Cage. Luke Cage is very much a show that's speaking, it's having a direct conversation with the black American experience right now, right? You, it's, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to argue um, that uh, an awareness of what is happening in the country right now did not factor into the story that this particular season was trying to tell. And I think that it gives mm-hmm. some things right, and others, it comes, you know, it flirts with the idea of making explicit uh, commentary and criticism, um, but it never quite, um, it never quite brings any of those ideas to full fruition. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, I mean you know, like much, I, I much, can, much has been are, written are, about, just, you know. I, a, go ahead. Just real quick, I have a question for you. Uh, to yeah. that particular point, are you leading more to the character of Luke Cage or all of the characters? Mm. All of the characters. Um, because I think okay. that 
as two-dimensional as Luke is, two-dimensional characters are fine if you have enough characters playing off of them and pushing them to sort of like either challenge their notions or their, their, their outlook on the world um, or just provide like enough of a contrast so that you as a viewer come away with a more dynamic understanding of the story that's being told. You know, Luke, mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, is he's the person that we're supposed to cheer for. And he's very much like a black and white kind of man, right? He's very, there's very, there's very his little gray with clear. him. Oh, right. Yeah, his and coat is like, pretty black and white. Yeah, there's a strength to that, to a point. But then it's just like, all right, dude, well, the world isn't black and white, right? Like the world that Luke Cage is setting up is not one of, or rather it is, it is what am I trying to say here? The world that Luke Cage has built is still very much grounded in the real world, right? Where people that we think of as villains have their various reasons for getting into what they do. And they'll like go out of their way to sort of justify and explain it to you. Um, But like Luke Cage's response is just very sort of, flat and it just doesn't work for me it works in those moments where it's you know just pushing along a superhero story but when it gets into you know the racial commentary it's like ah, that's not like that's not the real world right um just so sort but of I like but you know what at the out. same time i completely i completely agree but at the same time on that point i think misty does bring more to it hmm. because Whereas, whereas Luke is like, his code is pretty clear, but he's kind of like, I'm just going to do whatever I have to do, man. I just mm. have to do it. You know, okay, but what, is, what does that mean? Misty, I see Misty take more of a journey. Even in the comic book, she took a journey because she was a cop who believed in the system until she got hurt and then her view changed. But, right. and then this, I think in Netflix, in this, this version, she's a cop who believes in the system until she realized that the whole system including her brother, right, 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 right. was all, you know, all messed up. So, because she, you know, at first was against Luke. So I think that, remember that whole thing about, you know, I don't seek justice, I stalk it. But then yeah. that's towards the beginning, of the beginning of the series. And then by the time you get to that epic, epic episode, she, she also should be nominated for this. Yeah. Where she, she has to talk to the shrink. And she's in there talking about how I don't, you don't understand. I can't lose control. I can't. And I'm, I'm sitting there looking at the scene going, because she's going through this thing where all the things that she has seen have formed who she is. And now you're trying mm. to tell her that everything that she's believed in doesn't work. And she, she was held at gunpoint. That makes her weak. She cannot be weak because in her whole, the whole world and her whole thing that she's built up for herself, um, in order for her to survive in this world, in this universe, where she realizes that she has to navigate crooked cops, even though she is one, she looked at and spat on. She says, I know wherever I go, we're, we're hated and cursed at and spat on. She's having that discussion with Priscilla. It's that, and for lack of a better term, it's that code switching that she's so used to doing that that's basically short circuit. When mm. that, when Diamondback holds her holds that gun in front of her head, that made me go. I had shivers. I was like, "Holy crap!" Because you, you, you're as just and this is just you know a black woman navigating the world. But mm-hmm. when you're doing something like you're in business, you're in business. You're one thing. You're home. You're something else. Like notice how she switches when she's in the barbershop, shop when she's seeing pop. She switches. Granted, she was undercover at the club, 
but she goes back, you know, when she, she's different when she's with Priscilla. She, and that's what confuses her because she thinks Priscilla understands her codes. But Priscilla seems to be, to her, playing the same thing, wearing the mm-hmm. same mask in front of her that she's wearing in front of Alpha. So as two-dimensional as Luke is, I felt that Missy was very well-rounded and very well thought out. Sometimes I felt it was even more so than Mariah. As amazing as Alfred Woodard did, I felt hers was a slow burn that you saw fully realized later in the, in the episodes. Misty, right. every time she came on screen, you were seeing, like, is she undercover? What is she doing? What is she looking at? What does she believe? What is she thinking? Like, I was interested, you know, and I didn't get that from Luke. It's like, oh, we know what you're going to say. Right. One thing I want to say about the show's politics with respect to Dillard, you know, I'm not black, but I I work in New York politics. So observing this from someone who's been in politics for a long time, I really thought it was sharp how the show pulled out the differences between the established political families in black neighborhoods versus the uh, African-American leaders coming in from other places generally who have coming from like Ivy League education and who don't have the long-standing like neighborhood family ties that bring them into those positions? They're not coming from a Democratic Party machine position, and so that mm. conflict exactly. between her and Damon Boone, and they even joke about like, oh, he's this Jeffrey Canada guy, you know, being someone who's like a charter school person, and they talk about him being from Stanford, which isn't even a New York City Ivy League school; it's an Ivy League school elsewhere. Um, <laughs> and but, but sort there's of, a long, there's a long history of that. There's a long history of that, like, and um, sort of. The and it harkens back to the whole concept of the talented tenth and W. E. B. Du Bois and all the concepts. Even at that time, how people how we were separating ourselves, light skin, dark skin. That's the other reason why she so violently has a reaction to this when he calls her Cottonmouth calls her Black Mariah because that means yeah. something else. Also, there's like double, triple meanings there. Notice how the the light skinned man is telling the dark skinned black woman, I'm sorry, you can't, you, you know you don't belong here, right? Like, you're lucky I let you live this long. And that is the other layer underneath that she's also, it's this long-standing yeah. us versus um, them, even within our own, like, communities. And the, the only thing about Mariah's character that I really wanted to see more of, like, you heard her talking about, I'm you know, building, I'm building, you know, buildings and I'm building schools. And you just see that but one you never time actually she's see talking it. to right. children. Right. Like, I wanted to see her, like, pop a birthday in, in, in the get down. I wanted to see her, like, out. Like, look, those that food is going over there. And those kids are going to be in this school. And I'm walking them over there. And I'm going to make sure. Do you see what I'm saying? So even though she was not complete, clearly, she was a baddie. I wanted uh, Papa Fuerte had his questionable moments as well, but what I liked about his character was it was a little bit more rounded out. You saw him in love, you saw him upset, you saw, but you saw that at the at the end of the day, even though he was crooked as hell, he still really wanted something for his people. Mariah, none of that was brought to Mariah's character. Mariah was just straight up, I want power, and this is how right. I'm going to get it. I want to chime in one thing one of our listeners. 
which I, I, I happen to agree with. A friend of mine, Scott Shields, has worked in Jersey politics, says, you know, for him, like, Damon Boone was Cory Booker. Like, he, and he's like, yeah, he, like, knows he the people. Like yeah, yeah. Um, and so that sort of conflict between, you know, like Cory Booker versus the established black political class of people who weren't coming from like an advanced, you know, who weren't coming from the from that educational system and who were doing uh-huh. political work by providing services to people who lived in those communities. Like that is how the political machine worked. Like it's, it's mm. all very, very real. I will say the the political thing that didn't make sense is they refer to him as being a councilman too. So I don't see how if they're both city council people, how are they running against each other? That that isn't how it works unless they're both competing for a higher office. Regardless. I mean, in the same yeah, way that Hell's Kitchen I, is its own yeah. entire city. Like like yeah. we, it's best not right. to look too 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 close at the fine at the you know at the seams of the Marvel universe. And I also would say I, that the way political corruption in New York works does not actually involve people going to your business and demanding they give you money and a hand over shakedown. And so <laughs> when it began with her doing that, I was like, oh, no, no, no. She is far too slick for that. How it works is if you don't right. donate to their political campaign, you don't get your licensing through the city. Like, that's how right. it actually works. The fact that she would send right, like, and that's what, like, people and that to people, people up. Is little... up. That's what showed up in the get down. They like they showed like cops and other people and other even fictional characters coming to Papa Forte like we we need your vote, and he's like that's wonderful I need my building, like so it was you could see it on that level you know I think they wanted to make it a little she wouldn't be there is the point like half the things that Mariah was at I'm like girl would not be carrying the bag full of money down the street by herself you <laughs> do that you would. Like I wouldn't even do that. I got I've got a friend, a cousin. I'd pay somebody twenty dollars on the corner. Go pick that up. That would not be me. <laughs> and also, just to play like, devil's advocate, uh, to play devil's advocate in support of the show, it's like because they've set Mariah up as being Luke's ultimate villain. You do have to sort of mm-hmm. figure out what match between their like between their respective between their respective power sets makes sense for like a television show. Right. Um, yeah. The kind of show, like a show involving Misty in investigating Mariah's shadiness, um, could definitely mm-hmm. work on its own. If only, you know, because like Misty would have to actually go, like she would be able to go out and do, you know, the footwork to actually follow up and catch Mariah, right? You know, doing, you know, doing her right. dastardly deeds. Whereas Luke's, you know, Luke's skill set is limited. You know, he's a dude, he's super strong, and he's indestructible. And so, beating up thugs in a store makes sense, you know, narratively and visually, which gets to that, it gets to the point, like why we had to have both cotton mouth and diamond back, you know, be these physical presences mm-hmm. that Luke had to deal with. Because again, you know, like what you guys are brushing up against is this core idea that Luke Cage is a solid, like it is a, it is an okay show. It's, or it's a great show that has like an okay character as its lead. Right. The show that everyone, I think, really responds to positively is a show that is centered and follows Misty. It's centered on and follows Misty, right? Sort of digging into Yeah, and I don't, think they were, like, I don't think they were – they weren't planning on that. That's what actually ended up happening. Um, right. But, yeah, they weren't planning on – I, I think they figured that um, – and the problem is this. Even in the comics, I think Misty had physically more to do than Luke. And unfortunately, Luke's character, the way it was originally developed, was such a black exploitation mess that mm-hmm. they really did have to start over. They, they, there's hints and shades of Bendis' version and Walker's version. Um, there's, 
moments in there that you're like, oh, I see what that is. Okay. Um, like when the guy punches him in the face and his fist breaks. That's a classic shot. Um, yeah. But the I, I don't know whether or not, and I think it was, I think everybody was also very, 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 very much in love with the image of the man with the hoodie, the black man in right. the hoodie being, right. being shot by cops and not dying. And I think that, one of the singular images, images are very real. I think one of the singular images from the show that I didn't see, I feel like was unique to the show and not from the comics, at least I had read, is you frequently mm. see him using his back and his body to shield people. Um, mm. And yeah. That, like, yeah. that is yeah. not something I've really seen the, used as much in other platforms. I, I think that's pretty powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's, 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 it's visually striking. Um, and, but it, it, I just feel it, Luke is one of those characters that comes alive when there's action going on, which has its merits. Mm-hmm. But in those moments where you're sort of supposed to connect with him emotionally, it all just kind of rang, you know, a little, not, not stale, but just like not, like it didn't, like the scenes didn't necessarily pop as much. Right. I completely agree. And yeah. but and that's why I think Luke Cage is a very strong ensemble piece. Like when yes. you're looking at all yes. the different characters as a whole, I think it's a very successful show. If it's interesting because when it's funny, when Luke Cage was on Jessica Jones, I didn't I didn't see it so much because he was basically not the star of the show. Right. But I expected his, char- his character to be a little bit more rounded out before they gave him his own show. And I, I think there that was that moments, was sort of like the, you said. There, there, there's that criti- there was that criticism that went around from the New York Times just after the show was released um, that a lot of people mm-hmm. have like a very visceral reaction to. Um, I forget what the critic's name was, but he said something to the effect of like, oh, Luke Cage is better as a supporting character and the way that it came off, like it was a very, like it the, there was a, there's a better way to put that. But I think that what we're talking mm-hmm. about is what that critic was tapping into that Luke mm-hmm. as a character is not written in a dynamic enough way to carry the show. Right. It is definitely Marvel's like strongest ensemble piece more so than any of the Netflix pieces and more so I would argue than any, you know, any of the movies or agents of shield, um, because together mm-hmm. they do build out this very grounded and interesting and compelling world in which they all have their individual motives that you, depending on, you know, who you're watching in one particular scene, you understand why Mariah wants something. You understand like why Misty is sort of dealing with PTSD. There are moments where like, you understand why Luke is just trying to stay low. Um, mm-hmm. It just so happens that in those moments where you are focused on Luke, if you stay too long, things begin to slow down a little bit, and you're just like, okay, like I want to, like, like let's pick the pace back up a little bit. Yeah, and I do think um, also there were also criticisms of him like being the guy that's just sweeping the floor at the barbershop, and I'm like, okay, everybody needs to go watch Ava DuVernay 13 because people who have been charged with felonies or people who've been charged with felonies that escape from prison. They can't uh, right. like, what do you get want him to regular do? full-time jobs. What do you want him to do? Like, even the right. even even um, based on Love's character says, even Pop says, he's like, look, if I wasn't paying you under the table, I could pay you more. He's like, you know, dude, I cannot put my social security number in the system. 
Like, no. To that, and to that end, though, we never figure out how he came into possession of that bar, Jessica Jones. We don't know so, that he owned it, but you never saw anyone else working there, I don't think. Like, in the day so got, and in the evening. I, I got in that discussion I with someone like else. I feel like there was one person. Hmm? Yeah, there was one other person <laughs> there that I assumed worked there. But I okay. swear yeah, at some point like, there's time. a reference in Jessica Jones that says he owns it or he came into possession of it. My bigger question is not just the bar, but he also refers to his wife. If he's got – if he's an escaped convict and going by a different name, how the hell did he get married? No, 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 no. Just, no. See, I don't think – they touched on that too. I'm wondering whether or not Reva and him actually did – like go down to city hall and get married. No, yeah. no, of course to not. Her I'm like assuming that. not. Because no, because because Reva. I mean, it's clear that not necessarily that she was in it, but she knew some of what was happening. She didn't want to escape, but that's part of his journey. What he thought he he was supposed to do, and who he thought he was protecting and helping, um, clearly isn't the same. I do think it's very interesting how they brought in some of the things like from Jessica Jones, like the drive that she died after she gave to Jessica, mm. you know, that whole thing. I, that was an interesting um, way of wrapping up that storyline. Um, I, I don't know. And by the way, Reva is the reason why in the comics, why um, um, Diamondback goes after him. They were both in love with Reva. That was mm. the whole problem in the comics. He's trying to get Cage get to be put away so he can get with Reva. That's in the comics. So what's funny is that, weirdly enough, they could have done that here, but instead they did the you know half brother thing, which doesn't bother me so much. It's just, um, I think some of I completely agree with you, Charles. Like where it shines, it shines. Where it sort of falters is when we, like you said, get into after school special mode, or I mean, but at the same time, it was sort of touted. It was weird. Was it wasn't touted as, like, like I would tell people who have kids, like, okay, I don't know if you should watch Daredevil. <laughs> but right, you I know, I know, you could, I, I, Luke I would, Cage, you could watch. I would with totally your kids. endorse. Yeah, yeah, because it's not, it's not nearly as, it's not, it's not nearly as bloody. Um, the violence is a no. lot more tame, and it does have. Like I'm like I'm a lot like I'm watching the show from the perspective you know of someone who grew up in a single family house with a black mom who was very much just like like you will notice history right and so in 2016 now <laughs> like none of this is none of this is new and so to you know to be talked down to about it, it's like oh lord here we go but you know to to remember that you know comic books and comic book culture is not just for adults. I could see how something like this would definitely be fantastic for kids to see, right? Um, and not and, just that, uh, comic books aren't anymore. Comic books are long, no longer for comic book people either. Right. That was the right. other thing that I was going to. Um, that was the other thing that I was going to um, touch on that I find very interesting. A lot of now, I'm a little bit older than you, but I some of the some of the reference even to, and some of the preachiness I did see. It didn't bother me as much, but I did like use instead of I I didn't think it was being really conservative. I really just felt I was hearing Chao's voice sometimes, like you said, mm. like Luke is breaking Luke is breaking character, and now it's Chao. You know, sometimes I felt that, but 
one thing that I found very interesting is that so many um, criticisms I heard of basically like respectability politics within the show itself. And I thought mm. like, that was funny. There were, mo- there were moments of respectability politics. Yes, Mariah's character is built on them. Um, mm. I don't think Luke, Luke K saying he doesn't want to say the N-word is respectability politics. Because to me, respectability politics is Cosby sitting up at the NAACP saying, stop naming your children all these black names because that's why they're going to jail. That so, is respectability mm. politics to me. I agree with you. And the show in and of itself, like the, so the respectability politics in relation to Luke are not, it's, it's like, it doesn't spring entirely from the show in a vacuum. A lot of that no. has to do, no, a lot of that has to do with the things that Mike Coulter said in the marketing and in the interviews around the movie. I'm sorry, around the, around the show. Um, the one piece that comes yes, to mind, it's, a, uh, it's the no, vulture no, no, piece where they sort of go, the, is, go ahead. Uh, the uh, I agree with you. All I'm saying is, yes, I think Mike Coulter might have a respectability politics thing going on. But yeah. I don't think the show did. But, yeah, tell me about the – because I didn't see this interview. I did hear about it, but what interview are you referring to? So it's, um, an, so it's an interview that Shao and Mike Coulter did with Vulture uh, about, how, you know, about the process of getting Marvel to greenlight the use of the N-word in – Luke Cage, mm-hmm. right? Um, the argument being that in order for this to be a truly authentic representation um, of black life, particularly in a uh, black space like Harlem, um, you know, this is the language of the people, right? It's a word that people use um, in various contexts, and to act like it doesn't exist um, would be um, inauthentic, right? It would be it would be a lie, which is true, which is like I totally like that. Mm-hmm. Like I will I will give you that. The show's treatment of the word is very. Um, I'm trying to figure out like the most charitable way to put this. Um, it's very basic, right? It's like, oh no, no, this is a like this is a this is a bad word, right? It's a word that people only understand in a negative context. Um, that's sort of the, the the text that exists within the series itself. Uh, but within the within the Vulture interview, Mike Coulter basically said that the reason that, in his opinion, Luke would never use he would never use that language the way that someone standing on the corner who had lost all respect for himself would, right? Which is sort right. of like the most entry-level kind of respectability politics that you can engage in, right? Like, oh, no, you don't love yourself enough, you know, and I can't be like mm-hmm. you. And so I understand what you're saying about the show on its own, not necessarily engaging with that particular kind of respectability politics, but when you look at, how Luke Cage is being, how it's been branded and how it's been marketed. Like we're sitting here talking about the show within a show that we love, that is mostly focused on Misty's journey, but Luke Cage as a property, you know, it is Mike Coulter's face, right? Like it is Luke Cage, Mm -hmm. you know, who is front and center, you know, all of the discourse around how the show is commenting on black lives matter is centered around the image of Luke Cage wearing his bullet ridden hoodie with his hands up and so it's difficult for me to sort of be able to spin one out from the other or to not understand that they yeah. are two pieces to a cultural event that's happening. And so then when you look back at how the show treats the N-word, you're like, all right, well, it's not like, it's not, it, it, it's not doing as much as it could, right? Again, uh, the word is only used negatively. There's a conversation between mm-hmm. Cottonmouth and Mariah 
where Cottonmouth uses it, she says, you know, I don't like that word, um, right? Mm-hmm. And then he re- he uses it again with a slightly di- like with a slightly different tone to his voice that mm-hmm. is both amiable and hostile at the same time because he's talking about subordinates. But aside from that, um, the only other instance of the N word popping up is in that it, again to bring it back to this Christmas this Christmas attic scene. You know, where Luke is being held at gunpoint, right? Uh, kid calls him the N-word, and then Luke is just, you know, he is tired. Actually, Mike Coulter brings it up in that interview, and he explains that from his perspective as an actor, what Luke was feeling in that moment was that having dealt with, you know, everything that he'd gone through, um, he was just worn down. And in this one particular moment, you know, he broke his own code and decided to mm-hmm. use the word, right? And then when you watch that scene, like, like just to be really real for a second, you can hear it in Mike Coulter's voice that he is not comfortable using it, right? The deli- yeah. Like, I, yeah. like I, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. The way that Mike Coulter used the N-word at that actor was rough, like rough in a way that I well, would yeah, like to do that again. Yeah, he's never he's not used to using the word and not no, necessarily. And, I'm, go ahead. There's like because there's no because there are no layers to the delivery of it. It reinforces this mm-hmm. idea that Luke, as a character within the show, is approaching its use, you know, in this very flattened way. That reads as problematic for me, right? Because there are so many things. Um, there are so many things about the series, music in particular. Like if you go down the track list of songs, you know, that are used all throughout, you know, the series, the N-word pops up plenty, plenty, yeah. right? It's an integral part of hip-hop culture. Like we can't, we can't ignore that. And so... I mean, every episode okay. was basically named after a gang star song, and clearly those songs use the word. Right. And so... To, and so to treat it in such, like, uh, an unsophisticated way in the mouths of the characters of the show struck me as, like, eh, like, that's weird. Like, that, that, that's such a weird thing to mishandle so badly. And I think that ultimately comes back to, um, you know, is this Chio's voice or is this, like, is, is this the character's voice? And also, like, what commentary is the show as a whole providing, right? It's at the end of the day, you know, um, the Luke Cage team is complete. Like they are completely free to make whatever, like they made the show that they wanted to make and that is their right to do so. But it just, it may, it gives me pause, you know, like when, when, when we are having these full throated declarations of this being like the blackest show on TV, it's like in some ways, yes, but in this very, in this one particular way, it really left me cold. Well, and then the other question is, and I still don't, I still don't believe it's necessarily <clears throat> the exact show he wanted to make because I'm an editor mm. in there, and I know I want to know. I mean, if I got a chance to interview Cheo, the first thing I would ask him is, "What scenes were deleted? Tell right. me what scenes right, right, right. was the cut." Because I'm wondering if some of what we're looking for, I don't think we would have changed our. Um, I don't think it would have changed my idea much about <clears throat> Coulter's performance as Luke, Luke Cage, yeah, yeah. Or Luke and Luke's delivery of his lines. But I am yeah. curious about whether or not we would have seen a few more, because I feel like it's just missing a few bricks. It's just a few, few bricks. Right, that's, that's the thing. And they're so, they're so, 
there is like the gap between where the show is now and the show that I think that it could mm-hmm. be. It really is just missing a few key components that would elevate it immensely in my mind. Um, I'm of the school of thought that says that because Lucas, because the show is so solid in its like subtlety, you know, just like being able to mm-hmm. see black characters being being very black, you know, in in, in, right. in the most casual way. That's sort of like the base level, and that like there's a version of this show that doesn't have as much of the preaching in it that is literally just a bunch of black people acting on screen that would mm-hmm. work for me. And then there's a more elevated version of this show that is trying to have um, a very explicit conversation about contemporary black American politics. That is, you know, it's, it's not quite where the show is. And that is a show that I love. I like in theory, but where the show is now it's in this, it's in this in-between space that just doesn't feel comfortable or or entirely complete. Like you're right, you can like you can see the gaps. You can see the like for, despite the fact that what is it, 13 episodes long, you can see that. Yeah. Uh, you can see the seams where things were stitched, like were, were cut apart and stitched back together. Well, yeah, because like even that episode that we were just talking about, where he's using the N-word, and the young man is holding a gun to his head, and he's outside the Christmas attic houses, and he was, because in the beginning of that scene, I didn't know what he was talking about when he was like, we are standing in front of him. I'm like, well, where is he? But I couldn't, right. you can't tell in the beginning of the scene. And then when he's like in front of the Christmas attics projects, wait a minute, are they saying that Christmas attics is a, because I have a whole thing about Christmas attics. Um, right. And I just, I just, um, Alana and Brett, really quick. My whole thing with Christmas Addicts is this. We were all taught that he was the first man, American, to die in the Revolutionary War. Um, Mm -hmm. My issue with that is at the time of his death and when he was killed, he is part black, part um, um, Native American, and part white. At that time, only one-third of him was considered a human being. So at the time of his death, he was not even considered a full human being. So he was basically posthumously pushed into this role of being, this is the first person to have died and at the hands of the British, and I doubt that he was, but that's what the, um, Paul Revere and his crew used for promotions, basically, and that is what also many abolitionists use, and that is the name that we hear and in, in that we're taught about in school. No one talks mm. about the Buffalo, Buffalo Soldiers, Nobody talks about a lot of the other people who actually gave their lives at that time, um, mm. created technology, things like that. So I have a particular personal issue with Christmas Addicts being held up as this, like, icon. But even as, again, as an editor, that entire scene, that whole episode could have started with that couch flying out the window, the guys yep. flying out the door, <laughs> and a bunch of gunfire, and we could have hit the title. Like the cold open could have been that, and then we could have hit the side. That, I didn't that would have, have been it. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't have to see that whole conversation because I thought that usually when you do a cold open like that, you're going to see something in the show that brings that brings you back around that fills out how we got to this moment, you know, this right. big moment. And when we got there, it was like, oh wait, that was the thing I saw at the beginning. Okay, I don't know why this is here, but all right. <laughs> So it it was it that episode I don't think 
was ex- executed well. I once again, I don't think it's indicative of the entire series, but like cause mm. every time Rosario, Rosario Dawson was on screen, and it was so funny because her conversations with him, I felt like she was the voice of the audience sometimes. Like, what are you doing? Make yeah. up your mind. <laughs> like, well, make I up a like make a decision. <laughs> like Rosario Dawson is like one of my favorite actresses in the industry period but I would say that of the pieces of the show that I found least compelling was the medical drama even though I would yeah. like gladly watch her do anything like she's amazing I don't I'm not there for like the medical drama piece which is interesting because every Jessica Jones had this too they had like the medical drama episode and I think it's just that I'm not into medical drama shows so, like, whatever CSI thing it is you're doing or ER thing is very boring to me, no matter how talented and gorgeous you are, is pretty much the takeaway. I mean, I like, guess. as someone who loves medical dramas, I'm going to have to respectfully disagree with you. And I can see the, 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 <laughs> problem, the problem with Claire Temple in Luke Cage in particular, that scene where, like, one, like, I'm glad that we're finally, like, we're seeing Claire with her mom, right? We're seeing them, like, have this very, like, natural and organic relationship that just, like, crackles on screen. But this, like, pivot towards, like, oh, like, it's your destiny to take care of superheroes is just, like, no, that's just bad storytelling. Like, we don't need, I don't need Claire Temple to, like, step into her night nurse identity in such explicit terms. Like, she's at her best when she's literally just in the hospital. Like, why do you people keep coming here? I can't keep helping you. And eventually she comes around to doing it. And she's, like, don't bring, like, don't, don't bring this shit back to my job. And, of course, they do because it's what you expect. But going forward, and again, like, this is one of the weaknesses of comic book storytelling. You know what I mean? A lot of it is mm-hmm. writ large and ham-handed that way. So it's like, and now I'm going to become Night Nurse. And, you know, the nerds who are, like, into yeah. it, like, oh, my God, that's so great. But then when you look at it as just, like, when you look at it as just, like, uh, a drama, you're just like, oh, really? Uh, eh. Well, and also, at the end of the day, in the comics, she does because she's a doctor, and I was a little, you know, I felt mm. like this is like the hardest working, not doctor. <laughs> that you have it's ever a, seen on television. You know, <laughs> exactly. I was like, girl, you, if you don't have a degree soon, like, is she a nurse practitioner? Like, come on. Um, but I will say this, even though, even though her mother did have some, like, maybe, I, I agree with you, that line did make me cringe. I was so, so happy to see Sonia Braga. I was so happy. Yes. He's so awesome. <laughs> and so the casting was absolutely, absolutely amazing. And I do think that each actor definitely brought stuff to it. But not for nothing, I think a lot of outside of Theo Rossi and um, Shades and Cottonmouth, Mahershala Ali, um, I really liked it when the women were on screen. They were just. It had more, you know, energy and there was more stuff going on um, with them. And I just think um, I felt Shades was fantastic. I loved how you just couldn't figure out what he was doing. Now, again, the two things that there's two two kisses that should not have happened. I don't I don't think the Luke Cage Claire Temple kiss should have happened. Yes. God damn it. I know it's I know it's canon. I don't care. In this, right. I didn't want to see it. I wanted him to. I wanted them to have that tension. And are you going to knock Mariah Al- and shave Alfred- his free throw in the hand? I'm sorry. I was like, wait, 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 w
I don't feel like Theo Rossi knew it was coming either. Because the look on his face was like, okay, that just happened. <laughs> but here's you know who I shade. absolutely... She likes to say she didn't kiss him. <laughs> yeah, but with the thing with shades is the whole time... I got the vibe that even though, you know, he was supposed to be the flacky and the number two for Diamondback, that he's really the one that was oh, kind of was shaking. Brains. He was the brains and that he's been manipulating everyone to get what he yeah. wants. Because in the end, he's now also manipulating Mariah, and she goes to kiss him, and I got the vibe of being of him being like, yeah, you know, I've got you in my pocket. I'm I'm now controlling everything. Oh, no. Yeah. I don't no, I, can, that. I got that. I, I, you're so funny. Like, uh, <laughs> I, I got a little of that too. Um, right. I definitely think that he is the man behind the curtain. He likes that role. That was that's the yeah. whole thing. I liked how they reuse the metaphor of shades because the funny thing is in the comics, got like a cyclops kind of thing going on. So I was waiting mm-hmm. for him to say that he got some hammer tech shades and that they can now cut through walls. Um, mm. But the I the even though yes I did get the feeling that he was sort of controlling things even at the end with Mariah even in jail it's just like he's just somebody who knows this is where I'm good I'm very good at not being the man but standing right behind the man or whispering right. in the ear of the man or the woman and that is his role even though Mariah I think is going to be in charge it's she's definitely. He saved her. He technically, quote unquote, saved her and gave her what she wanted. So now that he's going to manipulate from that position. No, one mm. thing I do want to say the show handled well in terms of like, I guess, sexual power, for lack of a, a better description here, is Misty Knight is never slut shamed and she could have easily been slut shamed in a number of scenes where people were talking to her about her dating mm-hmm. life, like with the shrink. I, and yep. it didn't shame her, which was like, thank God, and for once, yeah. right? I and that was that great. Scene where, that scene where it's brought to light that, like, I wasn't sure if everyone in the room understood that Misty and Luke had had sex. You know what I mean? Like, I was, yeah. like, I was, I was thinking to myself, like, did they, did they hear what? I forget who, I forget which of them, like, reveals it to the other in that particular the scene. I think it's the, the partner, I think. But then you find out later that they all have GPSs on their phones. So he knows mm, that he right, went home with him. Right, 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 And then he reacts. He, he was standing behind them when he when Luke confronted her in the hospital hallway and was like, so who gotcha. am I talking to, the cop? or?" And so that was his, that was the partner's confirmation. But later he said, like, you know, we all have GPSs on our phones. I know where, I know my partner is at all times. Right. Then, yeah, yeah. Like, Mona, your, 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 your point is well struck. Yeah, they. It's interesting though because um, I don't know if anybody got the subtleties though of Mariah's character as a child. But before I don't, I I picked up on the fact that she'd been raped repeatedly as a child way before it came out in the conversation with yeah. the um because. That was her as a child in the house, right? And am I the only one who thought that Cottonmouth was gay as a child? Was uh, um, no, oh my god, oh my god, oh my, thank you, thank yes, you. I no, you were not. I he was, was like, he was, I was like, um, 
he was and they definitely going to just beat it out of him or something. <laughs> right, like you don't play that piano. Oh no 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 no. Like um, go, right, go, that, go 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 kill somebody and you won't be gay anymore. Like what? There is so here's the thing. There is an alternate version of this show where Mariah's sexual abuse is substituted for a subplot about Cottonmouth's homosexuality that I uh-huh. would much rather have seen um, because that trope of oh a woman sexually abused or you know be it like molestation um, as a child rape as like a young woman you know it's it's tired and old and it's like oh that's why she is this person right that was a defining experience of her life and while sexual assault is very much like a part of many women's realities it's overrepresented in comic books as being sort of like that galvanizing moment that you know turns a woman into a hero or turns, you know, or less, less or so, but in well, this instance, like, you know. Well, just like fridging a woman, that's just like fridging a woman turns the male hero into, like, a hero. Like, he can't make a right. decision until she's killed and stuffed in the fridge. Or some other appliance, apparently. And then just, like, <laughs> to flip it, like, imagine, like, imagine a version of this show in which Mariah is always being held up as sort of, like, the prodigy of the crime family. They happen to lean mm-hmm. into her potential for political acumen um but they you know yeah. are looking at her as being the you know the heir apparent and cottonmouth is you know I, I, the one i didn't like the fact that we never it's explained why his name was cottonmouth i would have much rather seen it you know there's a version in which you know let's let's say he gets beat up for being a gay kid right and that that is sort of mm-hmm. like his origin story like that like that there there's a subversion of these tropes that would have made a lot more sense if they had been flipped um, I like I could I could well, talk they touched, ad they about that. Go. Well, what's really interesting about it, and I'm, I'm thank you for <laughs> thank you for verifying that because I was like, I, if I'm gonna ask it, I'm gonna ask it now because oh, I've no, been trying to ask everybody. Soft. Like, is soft. it just Cotton me? Is that? <laughs> but yeah, I but I also felt like in like <clears throat> within like two minutes, we found out that his father was cheating. He was gay, and that one of the the people that Cottonmouth was supposed to be guarding was a was a trans woman. And I was like, did we just gloss past the trans woman? Did that just happen? Where am I? Hmm. Because we we I were did out not of pick the up on so that. Quick. Yes, remember when he was in the house yeah. and the and and Big Mama, I, I can't remember her name, said, "Where Mabel. have you been?" You know, yes. And his the name of the character was actually something like Sister Miss, something, Mister or something. Yeah, it was like very imaginative, but it was basically the the, uh, the that was the um, the young lady that was sitting at the table with the halter top that was holding the ice to her stomach. Yeah, that is a trans I assume woman that she that was, was playing a trans woman. Yes, no, that is huh. a trans woman played by a trans woman. Yes, and she was woman like played by a trans woman on a television show. Is that <laughs> not crazy? Of. Well, so I guess it's because she's a beaten she was, Right. Well, that was the thing. So basically she was um, – the mother was yelling at Cottonmouth, like, where have you been? And that's when he reveals, well, we uh, – I don't know. I was with Pop, and we made his her, – her husband, I think. Um, um, and we made a stop, and I don't know. He was in the back with some Spanish girl or something. That's when it all comes out that he was cheating on her. And then the next scene, she has him kill him. But I right. was like, we literally skipped it. 
skipped out of that scene so quickly, and then I went back on Twitter. I'm like, was that just me? And they're like, no, that's who we were talking about. That is that person. Is, and I don't, I'm sorry I'm saying person because I don't know the actress's name. I'm going to look it up. But, yeah, the, the actual character sitting there was um, a trans woman actually playing a trans woman. Um, Interesting. And there was, but we were in and out that, of there so quickly. <laughs> I think that was the scene when he was like, we were, you know, we made a stop. I got the vibe that, that Cottonmouth was gay. And I forgot why, yeah. but she made some – yeah, like that was the scene where I sat there and I was like, is he or is it? Like I couldn't tell, and I thought they were going to go I mean, there, and it, I'm still not convinced that he's not because they never really say that he's not. With, and I, I think it has to do with the actor, the actor's performance and then just the way that we're socialized to read, oh, sensitive boys who play the piano in movies, like they're <laughs> the gay ones. True. Um, that's uh, true. No, that's true yeah, because he literally true. just should be a sensitive boy that plays the piano – but I think I, – and I also think we are desperate to see some characters, some type of representation. So I, right. I think everybody on this podcast is hoping that that's, you know, what it is. So that, but they didn't, they didn't explore it. Hope maybe I'm just saying, like, that, like, that is a version of this character that I much rather would have seen. Like, I'm all <laughs> – like, give me – Give me a gay black man who is, who you know, who is struggling with his sexuality, who is also like a like a crime boss and a supervillain. By all means, please give me this character. Don't like, like now that you like now that you, you like, like open like now. I, I'm like going back and I'm like going back over certain scenes <laughs> and like like reading them through a oh, clear I'm lens, sorry. and I'm like, well, damn, like this show, like I. <laughs> Again, like I'm coming back to this point, like there's so much about this show, there's so much potential in this show that I love that I'm like, no, 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 lean harder into it. Like it's okay. Like we want that version of this show. And I feel like a lot I'm of the dream. show didn't commit enough for stuff. I was gonna say like say there's a lot of stuff that showed. It, I was gonna say there were a lot of stuff the show didn't commit enough to, and that was probably its its biggest sin. Like the, the a thing that I would have loved to see more of, and it's one of the first political. <laughs> The first political things they mention in the show is they say uh, they talk about Justin Hammer's guns coming into their neighborhood, and they keep on bringing mm. up Justin Hammer's guns. And there's something to say about a rich, a rich white guy's armaments being brought into a neighborhood to mm. cause crime. That's a hell of a discussion and yeah. a hell of a thing to to talk about. And they well, mention it like because, because three times. They, it's, it's important because it's right. Everybody wants to blame, quote-unquote, gun violence, quote-unquote, black-on-black crime, quote-unquote, mm. on all black people, but but we don't make sense. Where right. are and, they and coming like, from? Right, and they, 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 <laughs> so they bring it up. That's, a, that's that trope, I think. Yeah, and they bring it up, but they're like, at no point is there this discussion of, like, this is being brought in our, our neighborhood. Like, it's hinted at, and it's kind of like this subtly there but there's just this never dive where someone actually discusses this really pertinent conversation and like a great conversation to have. Um, and there's right. like a lot of the stuff it does that where it like it tiptoes around and dips it in a little bit, but never quite really has the full conversation. I think yeah. that, like that's part, like part of talking about where the evils of the show stems from. The reason that the show never really gets it quite right is that there are too many villainous cooks in the kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. I think that uh, yeah. the stronger version yeah, of this show would have had... Yeah, we save a couple of those out. <laughs> yeah, the stronger version of this show turns Diamondback um, and Cottonmouth into 
one character, or rather Diamondback mm-hmm. just does not pop up at all. You know, he's always a menacing threat in the background. I think that, like, the show would have been much stronger if it had either set Mariah up as a more potent villain from the jump, or it, it mm-hmm. had taken a much more explicit stance, not against a singular person, but Harlem being flooded um, with, like, with hammer tech weapons. That let's, like, let's just say for the sake of, like, what ifs, um, Hammer snatches up a bunch of the Chitauri weapons, or, uh, like scrap metal, that you know, pop up in the Judas bullets, um, but there's just this flood of new weaponry on the market, right, that Hammertech is putting out and looks at just like making sure that Harlem gets it first. It's sort of like a testing ground. That is a kind mm-hmm. of manifestation of a real world social problem translated into the world of a comic book or of a superhero series that would have made a lot of sense narratively for both, right? It mm-hmm. offers, it would have offered right. the show an opportunity to provide um, some very necessary and important. Um, and uh, smart, it would have provided them with an opportunity to have a very substantive conversation about those problems um, while also completely gelling with the logic of the Marvel Universe. Um, but it, it doesn't, right? Like that, like in my mind, like that is a story that no, you're would absolutely have lent right. No, you're absolutely right. Because even in the storyline, it could have happened because I think it's after the last Iron Man in one of those one-offs, you see Hammer in jail. Technically, oh, he could yeah. be out by now or out on parole, mm-hmm. and he could have reverse-engineered just one Chitauri rep- weapon to make several. Right. That could have been... We could have tied... That's and that kind of, literally like, could, could have tied into even in um, um, uh, Daredevil. I'm saying? Like, right. like, it, no, it ties all into these all of things it. Like, could it, cross over. That's something that would have made yep. sense for Misty to be looking into. It's something that Luke would have been able to follow up on it, use his skill, you know, his physical skills to fight, you know, whomever. It also would have been that's... a completely legit, it would have been a very solid way to tie in Iron Fist, weirdly enough, you know, like we've never yeah, heard and of had the they not Corporation. Killed, and had they not killed off Ben Grimm, that would have been a perfect thing to be investigating up in Harlem. Right, right. I mean, not like that, Grimm. like these are... Ben, Ben Urich, Ben Urich, Ben Urich. Yeah. Ben Grimm is the same. Ben Urich. Yeah. Grimm is the same. What's Sanchez and Poe have to do with Amy? Yeah. No, Ben Urich. I'm still upset about the fact that they killed off that character because he was the one link to all of these characters. I was very mm-hmm. curious when they did that. But yeah, he could have been up there investigating, and then there's your there's your link to bring to go back downtown you know, to bring us into the next, you know, one, or somehow, you know, even, even Punisher, you know, there's, there's right, a way right, to right. link all these things together. Like Punisher is going to yeah. see a gun. <laughs> so. Actually, like, I, like the yeah, conversations like this that make me sort of like, they make me wistful. Like why, why aren't there more like hard, hard, hardcore nerds in the room keeping up the continuity? Because it's not that hard, you guys. Oh my God, just with a few easy little tweaks, you can tie all of this together in a perfect little bow. Um, well, yeah, I, I, I think that's the other problem. problem. There's a lot of non, non-geek people that are even commenting. And I don't have a problem with anybody who's not a geek. I'm just, I'm, I'm going to make a point. Like growing up, I was the outsider. I was the one that was the school and and like I spoke to white and watched funny cartoons anime 
and read books that were backwards manga and, you know, <laughs> comics and, and played, you know, I was the one that was made fun of and I wasn't clearly white enough to be white, black enough to be black. And I was caught someplace mm. in the middle. And so like, it's awesome to years later find all these other people that thought like me. I found a few when I was in college, but it was just not as accepted. And so it's so weird because I was an outsider and not considered, um, you know, I don't know. I guess somebody might've looked at me and said that I was conservative because growing up, I didn't say the N word. and I didn't grow up in the hood. I didn't. And I never claimed to, um, but there's a lot of us that escaped this weird box that we were in because we couldn't have friends or find people or communicate with people that easily through, you know, comics and all these, you know, all these things. So it's very strange to now then hear people accusing the makers or the people in Luke Cage and the people surrounding and that like this being outsiders and not understanding. It's just so, it's just very surreal to me because it was like, I spent the majority of sophomore year from the inside of my locker in high school. Like I was not cool. So I just find it really interesting how now, because being a geek and being a nerd and everything is so cool, this, the, the mainstream doesn't know all of these little mores and these conversations that we're having. And so right, and it's so, I think anyway, there's a point at which it's kind of, there's a way in which it's kind of frustrating when this kind yeah. of content comes out where you as like, you, you almost feel like an intermediary and you can see, you yeah. can see what you can see both like the mainstream and like the deep cut communities are like trying to get out of something. And it's yeah. in those moments where the content where like, where be it like a comic or a movie or a television show, it's in those moments where it doesn't quite hit that balance, right. That both sides you know, kind of, like, go at each other for, like, not doing it right. And then you in the middle, you're just like, oh, my God, I, I hear where you're both coming from. And there is a way that this can make everybody happy. There's a way that this – or not necessarily happy, but there's a way in which, like, this could have struck that balance so much more satisfyingly for all parties involved. And you just, like – you're just sitting there thinking to yourself, like, oh, why, you guys? Why do you do this to us? Right, right. And it's, well, and it's so funny because that argument came up the other day when somebody was yelling about, like, well – it makes sense that the you know culture would be out of touch because like his wife is white. I'm like, have Whoa. you read Luke Cage? Because he's married. To... <laughs> Wait, you don't read comics, do you? <laughs> so I was like, that's the wrong argument <laughs> wow. to make here. I'm sorry because you know Misty and the, although I in this iteration of Iron Fist that I just saw, I cannot see Misty ending up with him. But <laughs> God willing, no. <laughs> because Well, you know, this brings up a question I wanted to ask, though. I mean, this show is full of cultural references, and it's the kind of thing where, like, not everybody's going to get all of them, but Mm. some people are going to get something. And, and, you know, the moments which, like, I'm, like, painfully retro, so I'm, like, the person who got overly excited about hearing a stylistic song, People Make the World Go Around. Yeah. And it's, like, me and people's (laughs) grandpas, basically, who are excited about this. Um, so, so like, and, I mean, and obviously it has shout outs to the Warriors, which is like one of my favorite movies, but it was done in a kind of a very over the top way in that scene. Yeah, like, did you guys Diamondback have... said it. 
Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. These are the can you dig it? Oh, my God. What, what, did you guys have favorite cultural references that were worked into the show? Or ones that didn't work for you? <laughs> so I, I think got that one. Like, go ahead. So, by all means. My, so my, the thing my, that my, I just, – like, the the thing that um I really liked it was in the second episode there is a it's a stylistic of actually an I I'll call it an homage to do the right thing and Spike Lee's film yeah. when pops and cage outside of the barbershop the way it's shot reminds mm-hmm. me exactly of something mm-hmm. that Spike Lee would have done and I have to think that was done on purpose yeah that low angle <clears throat> when they're on the bench yep exactly yeah. Yeah, I, that's that's definitely to do the right thing. I I feel like it's when I feel Plus like it's light. when he's talking to Sal in the street. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I I still think that that line when <laughs> um when um Luke Cage goes up to those guys and calls them plug one and plug two. That just makes me laugh because that's a De La Soul reference, and I just that just made me holler. <laughs> and there were little moments like that that were just hilarious. Um, the, I think everybody likes to talk about the Biggie Crown iconic moment. Here's the thing about the promise. Biggie Crown. That one shot is great. It's very, it's, 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 it's you know, that was, it was clear that that was going to be a hero shot going forward. The mm-hmm. sequence at the end of the series with Mariah taking not down that not print. Necessary. I wasn't, it wasn't necessary, but I loved it as just sort of like a, just so that you know, right? Like, just like, it was, right. I wasn't, I, it was cheesy. Like, I, it, it wasn't like subtle at all, but just like seeing that the new order had like stepped in and that her style was going to be markedly different than Cottonmouth. It made me excited to see what her version of the nightclub is going to look like going forward. Um, because well, if mm-hmm. we, go ahead. I was going to say, well, the music in the nightclub was just flawless, episode by episode by episode. Like, the musical acts, you know? I, I love that we know yes, that Faith Evans lives in the Marvel so many... Cinematic Universe now. Yes, it's a better world for it. Yeah. And the Dells, the Del- it's like, <laughs> you know what's really funny? Well, that was like when somebody said right there, was, there were no hip, when they said, there, somebody was complaining that there was no hip-hop acts in the club, but I'm like, okay, so you don't know who Faith is, you don't know who Raphael Sadiq is. So you right. they were like the S in the 90s anyway, the essence of hip-hop. I don't know, and this is showing my age, but I did feel that a couple times when we were going from a scene into the club to see somebody singing, felt a little New York undercover. Like I felt I was going to see Malik Yoba walk in the door. <laughs> <laughs> like I had a moment there that I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> like I thought we were going to pan around, and I said, if we pan over and Malik Yoba's at the table with a drink, I'm falling out my chair. Because oh, wow. <laughs> it was definitely, especially a couple of those shots were an homage to that show, which honestly mm. in the 90s was the first show to have a black and Latino lead and that that were cops. You know, they weren't mm-hmm. thugs, they weren't, you know, drug dealers or whatever. This is pre-wire, pre, you know, Stringer Bell and all that. But it was, so that I didn't feel like a bit of an homage to that. But yeah, it was. There were a lot of little um, moments um, that I kept now 
I haven't been inside every single Harlem landmark, obviously. I'm out in Brooklyn. But I kept trying to figure out exactly what theater they were in for the their um, Cottonmouth and, I'm sorry, Diamondback and Cage for their fight. Because I was like, okay, I want to say the Apollo, but the Apollo is not this ornate. Like, I, it was a beautiful, I kept stopping to look at the architecture because they were taking so long mm. to shoot each other. Yeah, it was, I think it. I think it looks like this one old theater that was in Flatbush. I think it might have been like based on this theater that used to be in Flatbush that's actually getting remade okay. now, which is Brooklyn for mm. folks who okay. live here. I realize. Um, yeah. Right. Gorgeous sound. But yeah, gorgeous I just, It was gorgeous. I was like, "Where is this? Why can I not have a party here?" Like oh, another really good New York location is uh, uh, Detective Raphael. I'm forgetting Scarfo, whatever. His apartment, Scarf. like, it, that's like my apartment. I was like, oh, hello, New York apartment. It was such <laughs> oh, a good accent. Yeah. I know I know what was also an, a crazy reference. Okay, so you guys know that um, the partner, the partner uh, Scarf, I'm saying it wrong, Scarf, was in um, uh, Pulp Fiction, right? No. No, yep. he was the young yeah. guy. Yeah, he was the young guy that Sam Jackson was holding the gun to, and then he shot his friend, and he's like, I'm sorry. Did I distract you? I think that was the line. So when Misty says it to him, um, Frank Whaley, yeah, Frank Whaley was in um, Pulp Fiction. So when he shoots his friend, he's like, I'm sorry, did I distract you? When Misty says <laughs> that line to him, I cracked up. Because I was like, oh, my God, they're referencing Pulp Fiction. So there are all these little moments that I was like, ah! <laughs> And actually, somebody tweeted that at him. I do remember now. And he was like, oh, my God, someone And I guess he made, he made it sound like some, he made a bet that nobody would get it. Because his response was like, crap, somebody figured it out. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there were all these little moments. Um, that I thought, like, so, somebody else, I think, uh, in an interview, uh, Simone Mythic, who plays Misty, was saying that there was nobody on set that really knew how to do her hair, and she had to do her own twist out. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've done twist outs every night. That's work. Like, <laughs> like we were so I was having these little moments of that, like, where I would see things or remember things um, that I felt I connected with. And honestly, I think even with all of its little flaws, and I really, really hope that season two, they really, like, take it there. Um, or I, I don't know if they can t- – I'm nervous about Defenders. Charles, are you nervous about Defenders? I'm nervous. I mean, I wasn't until Comic-Con, actually. Um, I <laughs> sort of, like, after <laughs> – which is, which is not what you want to hear, but, I mean, after um, – after season two of Daredevil, I thought to myself, oh, okay, this is what Defenders is going to be. They're going to, I'm sorry for spoiling anything, anyone who hasn't seen Daredevil yet, but it's like, all right, Elektra is going to come back from the dead and sort of be an avatar of the hand. She'll have a, an army of non, like ninja zombies, and that'll be the thing that brings all four of them together, right? Makes sense for like a bunch of street level, uh, a bunch of street level heroes um, just sort of like duking it out with ninjas, sure. Um, but then when they brought out Sigourney Weaver and you learn that she's sort of like the big, big bad of the season, it made me think like, oh, well, 
okay, I don't like when I go into watching the Netflix series, I don't go in with very high hopes. You know what I mean? And Sigourney Weaver's casting made me think, well, they're not going to write her as like a small enough character to fit into this particular corner of the Marvel universe. So what is it that they're trying to do here? And like, what is the, ga- like, I yeah, feel like they're, I got, they're I got going the feeling to... of the mul- multiple baddies again. Right. And I'm like, don't do that, I... you guys. Cause when you, when you do, when you do too much, you end up doing far too little, right? Like keep this very yeah. simple. Like what we mm-hmm. really want to get out of this. We want to see this team of, you know, we want to, we want to see this team standing, you know, I don't want to see them in a circle. I want to see them in a line, like in downtown New York, you know, you know, going like doing work, putting in work, and just like give me the fan service of the defenders because in as much as like Luke Cage works as an ensemble show, it's because that's all very much grounded in this neighborhood. I don't know that defenders as an ensemble is something that will be able to hold my attention. I'm very willing and ready to be wrong, but as has been shown in Marvel's other pro like in its other in its other projects. When you get multiple heroes on screen, that's when the writing starts to fall apart a little bit and you start to favor certain characters over others. And the way that Netflix has set up, you know, its universe, its, its Marvel universe, Daredevil is sort of, you know, the de facto leader. And like, no to no mm-hmm. to Daredevil. I don't really need to, I don't, I'm not interested in listening to Charlie Cox tell other people what to do. Ooh, yeah, for real. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's just not... Yeah. The thing that we love about all four of these characters, Jessica and Daredevil, and well, we haven't seen Iron Fist yet, but presumably he will, you know, he'll follow that same pattern, is that they are these autonomous figures who are just, you know, plopped down into these sections of New York that somehow never seem to overlap with one another, and they're defending them, um, and, and that's when like they're nobody... at their best. It's like basically canon yeah. that nobody should ever listen to Daredevil's advice about anything ever, like. That is his character. So the idea that he could be leading this team of people, I, I really hope they don't do that. Just like It would be so typically racist for him to be in charge, for one thing. And also, like, yeah. Daredevil is the last person who should be in charge of anything. And I say this as a I fan. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, and, but I, I agree with every single one of those points you made, Charles, because that was my feeling, too. And I'm like, okay, yay, because... In terms of Electra, I'm like, oh, they're bringing her back when she was possessed by the hand. Oh, right. It's gonna be that's awesome. all you need. That's it. It's going to be right. That's it. I'm sorry. Electra was bad enough when she was human. You make her like a bad ninja zombie fighter chick that can't die. It's it's insane. So who's right. part god, part part zombie? And it's just, but okay. And they were saying, well, they're probably going to gender bend her character. And I'm like, I don't have a problem with that. But it's sort of like, wait, there's enough people here. What are you doing? Right. Again, I think they're going to do it again. I think they're going to have multiple baddies or we're not going to see Electra until, if Sigourney's a big baddie, then maybe they won't show Electra's or the hand portion of it until the end. Or until the end, Sigourney yeah. Weaver's character, or Sigourney Weaver is, um, and I, I don't, I'd have to go back because it's been a minute because they, they love pulling out the obscure characters, but, or Sigourney Weaver is going to be part of the hand and Electra is the tool. That is the only thing I can think of. And honestly, like that that is the only way that I can, yeah, that that won't be too much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing though, I would just say about like the return of zombie ninjas is, as you know, people have pointed out (laughs) about the problem with Daredevil is that all the Asian characters are not, 
really functioning as like people in the real world. They're all mm-hmm. mythologized and not really human. And folks were happy that, you know, Jessica Jones does not have any major Asian American characters, but it has conversations with Asian American people who are normal people doing normal people stuff like running a restaurant or being a detective who seems very competent, but whose name I don't even remember. But like the fact Mm. that people are like, oh, it has Asian American characters that aren't undead zombies. Progress! And it's still like competent detective whose name I don't remember is still like not not great, guys. Not great. Especially when we have, you know, yet another problematic white iron fist coming out to the show very soon. Yeah. Yeah. What do you and, like, the, and so you know what's really me, sad me, about that is oh go ahead, Charles. Go ahead. I wanted to ask you guys like so we like we're we're having a moment right now where everyone I'm a little not salty, but I was like, where were y'all a couple of months ago when we were you know, before the casting was announced? Because we knew that this was coming. Like I'm glad that you mm-hmm. guys have, you know, gotten hip to what we're like what we've been talking about, but like come on, keep up. That being said, you're so funny. I can I I'm I'm sorry. I detect some salt, Charles. I'm I'm detecting salt there. <laughs> no, whatever. Listen, we've been no, de- right. <laughs> like, and I said that I said that a lot of people like you do realize that that this thing was cast like when people were yelling about Black Panther. I had the same problem when Black Panther was first announced. Nobody white was writing it. I mean, black was writing it, and nobody of color was directing. It. And everybody right. was like, they, it wasn't this until gonna be Renee yeah. was talking about it. I'm like, yo, guys, I've been yelling about this. You know, so it, people don't realize because I, they, they're not look, they're, they're not necessarily looking at the same headlines we're looking at, or they're not right. following mm. the same writers we're looking at it until it's until it hits many times variety. Now, here's the thing, and it's funny because it took me a minute with Iron Fist because I was like, okay, well, it's canon that he's a white guy. I don't – oh, okay, right, the story, and he's found by the – yeah, that could be problematic. Okay, so why don't we flip the script? And it was um, basically the the um, gentleman that runs um, Nerds of Color, um, whose face I'm seeing. Keith Chow, yeah. Chow. Thank you, Keith have brought it to my attention, and I'm like, oh, right, Keith is making a lot of sense here because a second-generation Asian-American could totally have that experience and go, like, you know, I don't know all this. I need to be taught because I wasn't raised there. And that was mm. a more interesting story. And I was like, well, there's, wow, okay. And then I was like, well, maybe they'll do it. And then they didn't. And then not only did they not do it, well, we were all looking over here. Um, outcomes... Um, <laughs> Out comes um, Tilda Swinton, um, apparently playing an mm-hmm. HBCU. I'm like not gonna watch and that I movie. And I was like, I don't, I don't even. And it's a sad thing is, I really do like, um, I like all of those actors individually. I just was like, this was a bad, this was a bad thing. This is not, I mean, I think no. everyone should have known that Doctor Strange was going to be a little bit suspect when Marvel did not manage to get Joaquin Phoenix. Like, that was sort of the yeah. first indication yeah. that things were not as they should have been. I'm joking. But my question to you guys <laughs> is, what do you, <laughs> what do you guys think Netflix, like, what do you think Iron Fist could do, is there any way that Iron Fist will be a passable show when it comes out? Right? Cause no. We, we could... <laughs> You're no. so funny. A lot of like, I, absolutely not. I can't they feel like I'm so tired of like people. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I grew up reading Daredevil 
and I'm really mm. tired of like white people fighting ninjas, and I have no appetite for hipster fist, like hashtag mm. hipster fist, and like I I don't none of it makes any sense, and it's, none of it's compelling in any way, and it's just going to be more racist and stupid. I Finn mm. Jones actor who like should have said no i mean he already had one character he was acting at get destroyed on game of thrones he went from fascinating gay you know minor <laughs> minor hero to like gay stereotype over the course of two seasons which is like heartbreaking wow and now he's just gonna yeah. be like this you know this like white dude who comes in and excels at everything but he's also just sort of irritating in his presence when i see him in the trailer and i am not an anti-hipster <laughs> person like have you seen me but I have no appetite for hipster fist, and I don't think there's any importance or value to introducing it. Um, I, and we, I, we I'm fans, sorry, we warned Marvel. I need to write this down, hipster fist. Okay. I love please, it. Here, please, please, hipster fist, please do it. But, like, you know, we've had <laughs> petitions about this shit since the show was, since before casting happened, right? Like, the Nerds of Color yeah. and an organization called 18 Million Rising, which is an online organization of Asian-American folks, did a petition about how, you know, Iron Fist should be Asian-American. Like, they did it early enough that this could have been something that was listened to. And it wasn't listened to. I mean, they changed the media dialogue around the characters so that the press started asking these questions, and now it's officially part of the media conversation around Iron Fist. Is, right. Like, messed up that he's, you know, yet another white guy. But, um, but, you know, but your point is, like, the nerds have been out here talking about this for a long time. And it is going to be yeah. interesting when the rest of the, the critique the critic world suddenly like has this orientalist show upon them that they'll have to respond to. Um, right. And it's because well, let me ask you a question though. Let me ask you a quick question. Have you, have you guys been reading, well, Charles, I know you have re- reading the current power man and iron fist comics. Yes. David Walker. Yes. yes. So okay. Good. So now good. we don't have an issue. We don't have an issue with that iteration of him. Correct. I'm, I'm not going to be Asian American too, but I can live with it just because, like, it's not. I don't know. I, I would have rather like been Asian American. Like I'm the one that disagrees with everyone on that. Asian also, but in terms of it, about the hipster thing, though, because he does I, look I like he's like, from Williamsburg. He, yeah. he drinks craft beer, but the, he's, like, no, the, he's like, entertaining in it. The body language David, is really good. When you're talking about, like, divorcing yourself from canon, it's a lot harder to do in the books because oftentimes these are literally the same character that they, you know, that they were when they originated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'll get, like, a new Spider-Man like Miles Morales, who is just an entirely new person. But this Danny Rand, you know, through the magic of comics, is the same Danny Rand that everyone was introduced to back in the 70s. Um, the one like another like another instance of them of there being like not a corrective but you everyone looks at Nick Fury right Nick Fury every, Nick Fury that everyone knows is black because of the Ultimate Comics and how the Marvel Universe decided to pick up on that so I feel like in the books mm-hmm. I understand why he's still white it's you know this is all fiction every every literally everything is up for everything is mutable because you know whatever the artist decides to do whatever the writer decides to do can become canon. Um, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's different because for a lot of people, this is their first introduction to the character. And I think that that is sort of the kernel that a lot of people who are staunchly in favor of, who were, not were, but still are in favor of uh, Iron Fist being of Asian descent, is this idea that by and large, people don't know who he is, right? The people who are clinging so desperately to canon, it's like, I... 
as much as we love Power Man and Iron Fist, uh, David Walker's run on it, it's not like the most popular Marvel title out there, right? It's not something mm-hmm. that, you know, average kids are talking about. The only people who, you know, who are into the deep cuts of Danny Rand's history um, are, you know, these uber nerds, whereas the person who sits down on a Friday night to, like, binge watch Netflix, they don't know who this person is. They don't know who's under that mask. And so it was just one of those instances where there was no need for a weird reboot, you know, like with the, like, in making Johnny Storm Black in the most recent Fantastic Four, that was like, oh, like, People know who the Fantastic Four are. Like, Fox is just being bold here, and good for them trying. Yeah, but too bad they couldn't make a better movie, poor thing. Well, right, right. Sort of like, all right, like, <laughs> all right, so, like, get your priorities straight here. But with Marvel, right, like, right. That's, that, wasn't, that wasn't an issue. It's literally just like, this, for a lot of people, is going to be the definitive experience, and to start off grounding the character, like, to start off carrying over some of the more problematic elements of the original character into this new iteration is just, like, uh, uh, because when you get, like, deep down into it, there are so many things about uh, Netflix's Marvel shows that have changed from the source material that no one complains about, right? Like, Jessica Jones doesn't fly anymore. Uh, Luke Cage has a healing factor. These are all things that aren't from the comics, but, you know, are introduced in order to make this universe make a lot more sense. Um, And while those may seem like little subtle things, something as easily changeable as uh, Danny Rand's race might not necessarily have added anything narratively to the story, which I I don't think that that's true, but that's something that a lot of people feel like, oh, like, what would you have gotten out of him being Asian? Perhaps that wouldn't necessarily have changed the dynamic of the show, but it definitely would have changed the way that the show presents this character to its audience, right? It would have changed the way that people could right. become emotionally and personally invested in it, which is ultimately what people are really sort of that that is like that is the core of what people are up in arms about that they have effectively been shut out from being able to have a character. Um, that they could have related to. Because when you look at the Defenders, it's still three white people and one black person. One of those white people is a woman, sure, but yeah, it is not, yeah. they, they are no, not no, no, the most diverse right. team. When, but at the same time, I will say I was complaining the same problem with um, what, um, but what S.H.I.E.L.D. has managed to do, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., is that create and pull some characters, um, some obscure ones, some aren't, but people that we actually haven't seen and cre- and also create new characters. And I was watching the show the other day, and I was like, oh, look, actually, I'm looking at an Asian woman, a black guy, a Latino woman, a Latino man, and a white guy. And I'm like, wait, yeah, that doesn't normally happen. Just, you know, just walking past the TV. I was like, wait, hey. Yeah. And so if, if, if they're – they can do it subtly if they want. You know, it can it can happen. And whenever anybody says, well, and I understand we get into the arguments about, like, why can't we make the character white? Why can't we make them black? Why can't we make them Latino? These o- older characters, I'm still out here rooting for the new ones. Like, mm. I'm, I'm actually kind of, a, I'm actually one of the people that's very annoyed that the new Spider-Man movie isn't Miles Morales because we've seen the that other ones been. 17 times. Yeah, Spider-Man should have absolutely been Morales. I I actually fall into the the Danny Rand should have remained white because I want to see a character. What's that? 
Go for it. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Oh, because I actually think there's something to be said and a discussion to have about a character of white privilege and cultural pro- appropriation that you can have through the character. And I personally think <clears> there's a, a dynamic that's lost between Danny Rand, the rich white guy, and Luke Cage, the not rich white guy, in their in their eventual team up because there's gonna be a Netflix Power Man and our Iron Fist show. There's gotta be. And so I think there's actually discussions to be had. And by changing one, I think by changing, of course, the martial artist to Asian, it's kind of fucked up. But the mm. the there is something to be said, and I'm hoping that they're willing to discuss things and Jessica Jones and Luke Cage would indicate that they might be willing to have these discussions, or at least they'll dip their toes into it with Iron Fist. I don't know, but I actually think there is mm. something lost. Now, the interesting one that no one seems to bring up is Doctor Strange was originally Asian. If anything was to, cha- to change, Doctor Strange, yeah. the character, should have been switched. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Doctor Doctor Strange was originally Asian, and then uh, then I think they made it mixed at one point in time. And yeah, yeah it just, was like uh, I forgot what issue the, they changed it, but it, it was a drawing style. They changed it, and then he just became white. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. 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 I forgot who brought that. Uh, Kurt Busiek, I think, is the one that pointed that out, and I was like, no shit. That's <laughs> interesting. Um, I think the also the we can argue ad nauseum like about the the whitewashing of characters, but I'm still going to say what I usually say, and that is people have to start creating their own stuff and their indie stuff. Although at the same time, I do think that we do have to keep yelling at Marvel and DC in making these films to cast better and cast smarter. Um, right. I remember, when you I rely on the I remember what you think- end up well, you end up getting. Well, you end up if if you don't keep agitating for the big two to yeah. push for more inclusive depictions, you end up ghettoizing indie 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 work, right? Because the yep. way that Hollywood is set up, it's not they're not looking to greenlight these indie projects. You know, the few indie comics that have become you know mainstream successes, by and large, have been written by white guys, right? We've got Kickass. Um, it's the only one that comes to mind. Um, and again, like that is sort of, like those are people who have been able to launch independent titles based on the um, based on the cachet that they gain by working with the big two. You know what I mean? They build up a brand that is connected to them, branch off, do their own thing, and just you know bring that audience with them, so that eventually down the line, you know, Mark Miller is able to spin Kickass off into an actual film, and that's great. Um, but when you go back to sort of like when you retrace the steps to where he got to where he was to put him in that kind of position, that kind of track um, to prominence doesn't exist for a lot of creators of color, a lot of women, queer people, right? Like those same beats aren't necessarily being hit. So like, like, like you were saying, you have to keep pushing Marvel at the top, being like, all right, you know, you can't just tell us to have our own because while we can have for us, by us, if you aren't, like, we can't be the entire solution to the problem, right? As is true of all issues relating to representation between a minority and a majority, when you put the onus entirely mm-hmm. on the minority to sort of pick up the slack, that is effectively setting them up for failure ultimately, right? Because it's not just about existence. It's about um, not acceptance, but, like, representation at the table, right? Like, we deserve to be here as well, and you need to meet us more than halfway to get there. 
I completely no, I completely Great. agree. You and you do mm-hmm. have to you do have to keep putting the pressure on, otherwise, because that's the problem. You, it, when you when you stop paying attention, Trump happens. <laughs> like, right. Thank you. When you stop talking about stuff and moving away from things, Trump, ha- you turn around and you go, "Wait, why is that happening?" Oh, because you stopped paying attention. So, right. no, you're absolutely right. So, you're absolutely right. unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up in just a couple of minutes. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to just get final thoughts on this. I mean, for me, literally the one last thing I felt like I have to say is this theme song from Luke Cage is the best theme song on television in. I don't even know how many years. It's like the best theme song on television for like generations. I don't even know. But um, I want to give you guys a quick second to say like one last thought and then tell us, our listeners, where they can find you on the Internet. Uh, Go ahead. I'll go. (laughs) Yeah. um, One thing that I absolutely, absolutely, absolutely love um, about um, all of Netflix's uh, Marvel stuff, but Luke Cage in particular, um, is the costuming work. Um, mm, I forget yeah. what the woman's name yeah. is, um, but she has been talking about sort of like the process of translating the classic looks um, to this real world. I am in, I'm deeply in love with like Luke Cage's cheesy, campy black exploitation look. And that brief little nod to it was in my mind, like the perfect <laughs> nod out of them all so far. Jessica Jones's was cute, but like I, looking at that jewel costume, I never got the feeling that she ever could have actually squeezed into it. But no. like snatching <laughs> that shirt off the, snatching that shirt off the clothesline um, was absolutely just uh, flawless. And we can find you online at. You can find me online at Twitter. I'm at Charles Pulliam, C H A R L E S Pulliam. You can see it in the show notes. Um, it's where I where I share out all of the unbidden thoughts that come to me. And um, I'm honestly, I still think that everybody should watch it because one of the amazing things about Luke Cage is the fact that we can do what we're doing tonight and have these right. discussions about all of these different topics. And that, to me, means something was done right. And um, mm-hmm. I'm Karima, also known as the, the Blur Girl, and I'm basically the Blur Girl everywhere. B L E R C. G-U-R-L. Yay. Well, thank you guys again for joining us. I'm so excited about this conversation, and, and um, you guys are the right folks to have in the room for it. So, uh, Brett, do you want to count us out? We have a special guest coming next week on Monday at our normal time of 10 p.m. Yes, this Monday at 10 p.m. We've got Karen Berger, the uh, legendary editor uh, who is back in comics editing Surgeon X, which is out from Image Comics. We'll be talking to her at 10 o'clock. Uh, should be really, really cool. She is uh, she's a titan in the industry, that's the best way of putting it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So you can go check that out. Awesome. Uh, the episode is already up on Blog Talk Radio, and of course we'll have uh, a reminder on uh, graphicpolicy.com, so you can go check that out. Uh, and then, as cool. usual, you can Find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy, keeping it nice consistent. Of course, we also are at graphicpolicy.com. This show will be up on iTunes and Stitcher in probably an hour or two and then uploaded on uh, Blog Talk uh, on, uh, on SoundCloud and then our, our site tomorrow. So you'll be able to check that out, listen to it on the go, share it with your friends. Uh, and yeah. And Let's I'm E L A N A underscore Brooklyn. 
and apparently you can also find me if you look for Hipster Fist, because not enough of you are tweeting it yet. So. <laughs> Be careful. Thank you. Be careful. Be very careful when you're Googling Hipster Fist. Oh, yeah. No, don't Google Uh-oh. it. Just, just, just use it on Twitter. Uh-oh. The hashtag. Thanks. I'm going to go hide now. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, you can catch us next week. And as always, thanks to our guests. It's been an awesome conversation. Till next time, keep it geeky. Thank you. Thank you.